so we've been going through this series, Ephesians, and so I'm actually going to be the next installment of our Ephesians series, and I'm so grateful at just the way that Paul even writes, honestly, is incredible, because he establishes this unbelievable truth that what you believe informs you of your identity, and out of your identity, your behavior flows. And so for me, it's been this unbelievable unpacking of what do I even believe to be true? What do I believe in... Not just like, what do I believe, but what do I actually act on because of what I believe? And so if you need a a little recap, I don't have time to go into all the messages, but just real quick, the recap is the chapters one through three of Ephesians are all about belief. Say belief to your neighbor. Belief. Belief. Yes, it's all about belief. And we're about to turn the page and go into the next chapter, chapter four, which is all about behavior. Tell your neighbor behavior. Behavior. Say behave yourself. All right, some of y'all really meant that. All right, Ephesians 1 through 3, belief. Ephesians 4 through 6 is going to be behavior. And so in order to start this off, I feel like there's a, there's a quote from a guy who has really meant a lot to Christian thought for so long. And we've talked about this thought, actually, and it's by a man named A.W. Tozer. And he's a guy who actually has um, helped pastors think for generations and generations. So he says this. I'm going to put it on the screen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And to be honest with you, I actually missed, uh, I Googled this quote because I was like thinking about belief and how it informs our identity and I was wrestling with this and I actually Googled it wrong. I said, to, I Googled this thing and I said, when, what comes into my mind when I think about God is the most important thing about me. And I was reading this quote and it was actually our, we, and us. And I realized, Tozer's entering into this conversation that Paul's about to enter into in chapter 4 of Ephesians, which is that your belief is collective. You're part of a church family, and your belief is not just rooted in me, myself, and I. It's a we. It's an us. It's a family. And for so long, I don't know about you, but I actually have so many times said out loud, my faith with Jesus, my own faith, own your faith, own your faith, own your faith. And it's all been about me, but I want us to take that turn with Paul in just a second. And we're going to find out what it means to be a part of a new family that God is creating. So excited. But here's the problem. And here's the problem with churches in general. Is I feel like we stop in chapter 3. Because chapter 3 says, and now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, yes, let's go to lunch. We got the beliefs right. And so we're united in our beliefs, and we can all say yes to that. But we're not always united in our behavior. And here's the tension that I want us to enter into today together. You can have all the right beliefs and still waste your life. You can grow up physically and not mature spiritually. And later, I can't wait to talk to our five and seven gatherings of mostly college students and say, you're not just going to grow up in your faith because you get older. You have to take some intentional steps, and Paul is going to show us how to do that. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. If you have your Bibles, hold it up, hold it up. Yes, Miles brought his Bible. Nice. Just checking on everyone here. Hold it up. Normally, we do a single people Bible drill, but you know what? It's my turn. We're going to flip it upside down, all right? So if you are single, dating, engaged, turn with me to chapter four of Ephesians. If you're married, keep it up. Yeah, married people, it's time. It's time. If you've been married for less than 10 years, turn with me to chapter 4. If you've been married with me longer than, or sorry, less than 20 years, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm not going to age shame you any further than this, all of you 39-year-olds that look lovely. 
We should give him a round of applause, right? Round of applause, you guys have done it. <laughs> Ephesians chapter four, verse one, everyone turn to there if you can. If you're there, say, I'm there. Ephesians chapter four. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Wow, Paul. My goodness. There's so many amazing nuggets of truth in here, and we're going to go through each verse in just a second. But if you need a title for this sermon, the next installment of Ephesians, this installment of Ephesians is called Worthy of the Calling. Worthy of the Calling. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're so worth it. Some of you married people needed that. So worth it. So worth it. Ephesians 4.1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You notice how the purpose of the call is always rooted in the one calling and not the one receiving the call? The purpose of the one calling, it's always in the one calling, not the one receiving the call. And I actually learned this a really hard way in Auburn, Alabama, because I learned really quickly that people will call you and want to talk to you for four to five minutes. How's your family? How's your life? How's everything? How's your dog? How's They'll ask you all these things before they get to what they want. And it's honestly amazing. I've never been a part of it, but eventually I'm like, what do you want? We've been talking for seven minutes now. You haven't said anything. It's because when you are receiving a call, you're wanting to know, why are you calling me? And so I needed to speak real clearly to some people in the room. Calling is not your career. And calling is not a vocation. Calling is a voice. And here's the reality. Where did I get that from? Isaiah 30, 21 says, whether you go to the left or you go to the right, you will hear what? A voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. What is the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so if you're wondering, what is the will of God for my life? The will of God for your life is Jesus. It's himself. It's a relationship with him. It's to walk with him. And so the calling that you have in your life is always 
The purpose of it's always rooted in the one calling you. And so I actually had this revelation this, this week. I was thinking about this. And I just had a son, Griffin, I know. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Parker Amos. And we'll, I want to put a picture of him up on the screen. Is that cool? Okay, let's throw a picture up of my wife and Griffin so you get a little picture of him. I know. Swooning, I know. What's crazy is, uh, so um, the birth story won't go into too much detail, but when he was being born, he was coming out, and he was screaming like crazy, screaming, uh, and my, my wife did an amazing job, and she's, the, the baby, the doctor picks him up and brings him over and places him on my wife's chest, and he's just screaming bloody murder, and the doctor kind of gives me the signal, like, you can come over here now, right? So I, like, walk around, and I lean down into him, into his ear, and I just say, hey, buddy. Stops crying. It's crazy. I am God. No, I'm just kidding. So I felt. It was unbelievable. And I was a puddle on the floor, and he went back to screaming right after that. But he recognized my voice. I'd been speaking to him for so long, he finally could respond. It was powerful. And so, the worthy of the calling. How do I live a life worthy of this calling? How do I live a life worthy of this calling? Verse 2, let's go back to it. It says this, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. I love this. How do I live a life worthy of the calling? We need to change our perspective. And I think Paul is changing our perspective real quick. It's not about what I can do. It's about how I do what I do. He changes it. He says, look, watch, be completely humble. What is humility? Humility is the acknowledgement that God is God and you are not. God is God, you are not. Then what? Gentleness. You know what gentleness is? It's power under control. Power under control. Anybody rode a horse before? Anybody? Yes? I rode a horse one time. End of story. All right? A lot of power, no control. Okay? (laughs) Power under control. You go watch the Auburn equestrian team, power under control. It's beautiful. It's graceful. It's amazing. Gentleness. Jesus described himself as what? Gentle and lowly. He continues, be patient. What is patience? Patience is a byproduct of maturity. Think about it. As you get older, you become more patient with people. If you're growing, if you're becoming more mature, the same thing with God, this relationship. All of a sudden, you can wait on the Lord so much longer than you could when you were 10, when you were 15, when you just started a relationship with him. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. This, to me, is commitment. And if I'm honest with everyone in the room, we have a very fleeting relationship with commitment, especially my generation. I am the first to admit this. I got in so much trouble with my wife just the other day because someone asked us to go to dinner and I literally said out loud without thinking, what if something better comes up? And she's like, you're a jerk. (laughs) And I realized we have such a fleeting relationship with commitment and we have an anti-conflict view of life. We do. The reality is though, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to know that there is a holy God who cannot get close to sin at all. So ultimately all of us are separated from that. But it's also incredible the fact that Jesus paid the way with his mercy to actually bridge that gap so we could have a relationship with God. But people need to know that. And it's offensive. It's so offensive. But I'm going to forbear in love with you. I'm going to commit to you. I'm going to keep sharing this message with you. I'm going to keep staying around. I'm going to keep being your friend, even though you don't believe what I believe. I'm going to stay close to you. Forbear one another in love. So I was thinking about this this week, and I was just blown away 
by all the ways that Paul described how do we live a worthy life. And it's so counterintuitive to what I've been thinking the whole time about my calling in life. And so I, I feel like this is, could be helpful for some people. Living a worthy life is not about action. It's about attitude. Living a worthy life is not about action. It's about attitude. And yes, your actions flow from that attitude. But what are the things that Paul just described? Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearing one another in love. Sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit. Because they are. Living a worthy life is not about action, it's about attitude. And this is all related to our calling. So then verse 3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. And I feel like I just need to speak again to my generation and myself. I love comfort. I love comfort. I don't know about you, I love comfort and I love instant gratification. What does it say? Make every effort to what? Keep the unity of the spirit. I gotta be honest, there are so many times in my life where I have blamed God or the Holy Spirit for my lack of effort. So many times. I feel like maybe even in the room right now, there's some people who for so long you said, why isn't God answering my prayer? Why isn't God making me not feel sad all the time? Why isn't God showing up in my relationships? Why is there so much unresolved conflict in my family? I don't want to go to Thanksgiving. I don't want to go to Christmas. Why doesn't God show up? But then ultimately saying right here, what? Have you made every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Have you made every effort? Why does this even matter? Why the effort? He continues in verse 4. Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven ones. That's the number of completeness. Seven ones. He says, this is why it matters. This is why you keep the unity and the bond of peace. Because guess what? God is building a new family. And now the family looks completely different. He's looking at the Jews in the room, and he's saying, you know Father Abraham? You know the father, the family you're a part of? Guess what? See those Gentiles over here? They're a part of it. The whole reason why Paul is writing in Ephesians is to reconcile Jewish and Gentile tension by illustrating unity with Christ. And he's saying, guess what? We are one body, the church, with one voice is leading us, the spirit, with one hope, the resurrection of Jesus, one Lord Jesus reigning over all with all authority, one faith, we're surrendering to that, one baptism, which is ultimately us associating with the identity of Christ because that's our fuel. And what does he end with? One God and Father over all. He's saying we have a new family with the same Father. In Acts 2, it actually says that all the believers had everything in common. That's hilarious. They had nothing in common. If you read the story of the histories, it's like different races coming together. It's different, all kinds of different political systems, different resources, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And all of a sudden, they're in this port city together. And Paul's saying, guess what? You have everything in common because you have the same last name, child of God. It's so good. He continues. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I just want to stop there. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. You're different than other people for a reason. You ever thought about why? Why you might be different? I think personally it's so that we can reach people because that's the mission we're on. So the differences in our gifting free us up to be one in our calling. The differences in our gifting free us up to be one in our calling. Think about this. Think about this. 
I feel like what our world tells us and what so many people end up falling into this trap is believing that the differences of me and you ultimately divide us. They make us divisive because we're different. But I believe personally that the way that we are different actually frees us up to be decisive, not divisive. Because I know who I am confident in. I know who my Lord and Savior is. I know how God has gifted me and I can walk in confidence and freedom knowing that I don't have to be somebody else. I can be myself. And you can be yourself. Because the very different gifting that you have versus somebody else is actually the way that you can most reveal Christ to someone. It's so powerful. And he says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ's portion. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. To be honest, I wanted to skip this part because I had no idea what it meant. And I was like, this would be way easier than me just blaze on past this. And and I was like, why in the world, in the middle of this unity statement about spiritual maturity and unity in Christ, would all of a sudden Paul quote David from Psalm 68, 18? It doesn't make sense to me. Until I read both of them next to each other. So I'm going to put it up on the screen. Psalm 68, 18 says, when you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from the people. But Paul kind of misquotes him. He says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and what? Gave gifts to his people talks about the ascension, descension. What he is saying is that Jesus descended fully God, became incarnate, fully man here on earth, descended into the lower earthly regions to what? To conquer as a king. So what happens when most kings conquer is that they receive all the gifts. They get all the spoils of the war. They receive everything. It says that Jesus descended. Why did he descend? To come claim his captives. So what does that mean? It means that we are his gifts. He takes us back to heaven with him. When he resurrected, so did we. So now what does he want to do? At the right-hand throne of God, it says in, what, Ephesians 4, 8, it says, and gave gifts to his people. What that means is now he's sitting at the right-hand throne of God to what, to receive the gifts? No, to lavish his gifts on us. So now he's at the right-hand throne of God, and he's pouring out his gifts on us, pouring out his gifts on us and our abilities. And so the abilities that you have, guess what? They're not meant for you. The gift that you have, the gifting that you have, the passions that you have, that's actually a gift to the church. You can use your giftings, your passions, your desires to glorify God. Because to be honest, when you discover your gifting, that's where you're going to become most alive. And that's where glorifying God will come most easiest. Because you're stepping into the confidence of who you are and who you're made to be. So I have a question um, real quick for you. What are your gifts? And I'm going to give it real quick. I don't have time to go into all the spiritual gifts, and you can do the test on your own time. But real quick, the ABCs. Ability, burden, confirmation. Ability, burden, confirmation. Ability, what are you good at? What comes natural to you? What is the thing that everyone else struggles with but comes so easy to you? I'm so glad that Kelly Honor is our financial director. That's a gifting that most of us don't have, including myself. Burdens, number two, burdens. What are you passionate about? What makes you come alive? What is the thing that actually keeps you up at night? And you're like, man, this is an injustice in the world in this spot. Why is no one doing anything about it? That burden, believe it or not, I believe personally is a gift emplaced in your heart to say, you know what, you get to be a partner in the promise that I have 
and put the world back together in a specific way that makes your heart come alive. And last one, confirmation. What do others say about you? What do others say? Confirmation. You know, for me personally, I did this in my head, and the abilities part for me, the first time I ever stood on a stage at all was like for a one-minute thing, and my leg was like shaking like crazy. You know what I mean? Like, sound like I'm starting a, you know, beat to a country song. And, but then someone said, you know what, you actually had something to say. And I was like, I'm never doing that again, like ever. But the reason why I knew I wanted to go into ministry was because my small group that you saw the picture of my senior year, one of the guys looked at me and he said, hey, Gage, I'm going to join that fraternity. I'm going to start partying. I'm not into this Jesus thing anymore. And I've never been so furious in my life, personally. And I remember saying, you know what? I'll do whatever it takes, man. Don't leave your faith. And I realized really quickly that what breaks my heart more than anything else is watching people settle for less. Watching people live their life away from Jesus, apart from Jesus. And it burdened me so much that I remember saying, I don't want that to happen to anybody else. I want to do everything in my power to equip people so they don't leave their faith. And that led me to start the conversation, maybe ministry, maybe ministry, maybe ministry. And then Miles and a few others said, you know what, you should go into ministry. I think you could do it. Ability, burden, confirmation. Somebody say ability. Ability. Somebody say burden. Burden. Somebody say confirmation. Confirmation. Where your giftings and your passions align, that's where you're going to come alive. Where your giftings and your passions align, that's where you're going to come alive. And Christ knew this. So he says in verse 11, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, and the pastors to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Here's the bad news. The church has been compromised for too long. Too many times people think that I'm the one doing the ministry and Miles is the one and Matt's the one and the people on staff are doing what the ministry is. Our whole role is to equip you to do it. The entire role of the church, pastors, teachers, leaders, is to actually equip you to be the church. That's why every week we say be the church because we know church isn't in here, it's out there. And what's crazy is if you read Acts, 39 of the 40 miracles that happen in Acts happen outside of the walls of the church because people are taking it serious and and bringing the message of Jesus into their communities. And that's what we have this opportunity to do, to be the church. And the good news is, is that we are churches, God's chosen instrument to take the message of Jesus to a world that needs it. And if you're sitting here and you're asking yourself, you're like, what is this all about? We just want to make the name of Jesus, the fame and renown known to people. And our life has the opportunity to glorify something better than ourselves. And we want to invite others along. So keep asking questions. Keep asking, who is Jesus? I want you to ask that question. Why does this matter? Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. He literally says what I said at the very beginning. If you don't take this serious, if you don't change your attitudes, if you don't actually enacting this faith, guess what? You're never going to grow up. It doesn't matter how old you get. I don't want you to be an infant blown back and forth by the ways of teaching. You know how you grow up? You sow into the church. You begin to actually do what it says. You do what this book says. You start enacting it. And just real quick, because I was a youth pastor, I just want to speak to some parents in the room. I just need you to know that your kids aren't growing up faster. They're being exposed to more sooner. 
And that's actually causing what happens is a reclaiming of age of innocence. So later in life, they're going to try to be more like they were when they were a kid. It's why people are leaving their house a lot longer, or leaving their house a lot later. It's why in 2015, the number one uh, industry was the, the uh, adult coloring book industry, believe it or not. It's because all of a sudden, if we're not serious about this and if we don't grow up, we're going to be stuck, blown back and forth by the waves of teaching and cunning. And I don't want that to be you. So instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Speaking the truth in love. That's Paul's answer to this immature church that's literally fighting about who's who. Are you in? Am I in? He's saying, how do we do this? How do we stay unified together? We speak the truth in love to one another. I heard a pastor this week say, the only two people that will tell you the truth about yourself, an enemy that you make mad enough or a friend that loves you deeply enough. The only two people that will tell you the truth, an enemy that you make mad enough or a friend that cares deeply enough. And I think so many of us read this verse and we say, speaking the truth in love, and we pick Truth or love, we pick grace or truth. And I think about the people that are like speaking the truth, like, oh, God loves you. Like, I feel like those people, I think about like road rage. You know, like as soon as your car door shuts, you like lose your faith. <laughs> you become a new person. And just please take the ACC sticker off the back of your car if you're going to do that. But you know what I mean? Like the truth, you just need to know the truth. He says what? But in love. So I think some of us though, on the flip side of that, I'm guilty of this. We shield the truth in the name of love. And we don't realize that all we're doing is trying to shield them from the pain of the reality that they're in. That we are real people with real eternity at stake. And if you continue to shield the truth in love, guess what? It's way more painful. Because ultimately, we don't want anybody. And Jesus doesn't want anybody. None shall perish. But we have a responsibility. And to me, when I think about responsibility, it's not a burden. Responsibility is an opportunity to matter. Just ask any young person who starts a job, what do they want? More responsibility. Why? Because they get to matter. And so God is giving you an opportunity to matter for something bigger than yourself, to speak the truth in love. Information is not the goal. Transformation is the goal. And the first person I look at is Jesus. When I look at the life of Jesus, what does he do? He responds to so many questions with what? More questions. I think it's because he knew that it wasn't about a transfer of information. It was about a transformation of the heart. And so if you look at all his interactions in scripture, and I love them, there's so many incredible moments. What happens is someone comes to him and says, hey, are you the Messiah? And he says, well, who do they say I am? And who do you say I am? And so for some of you in this room, I need you to hear this. Don't miss this. Maybe for you, speaking truth in love is not having the right answer. It's asking the right question. And maybe this holiday season, you start asking questions instead of trying to give answers. Ask some right questions. And I, I want to challenge somebody in the room right now who's already checked out, doesn't want Jesus, doesn't want to do this. Maybe you've been looking for an answer, but maybe you've been asking the wrong question. And God loves to respond to questions. He loves it because it's a relationship. So I got two points. Somebody uh, hold up the number two with your fingers. Yes, that feels good, too. 
Now do the little bunny ears over someone next to you. Two. Two points. Point number one. Spiritual maturity is an awareness of how much you need God. How do we not become an immature church? We're aware of how much we need God. We get on our knees and say, you know what? Jesus, I need you. Even when I, don't feel even when I feel unworthy, even when I don't feel like I'm good enough, even when I don't feel like I know what I have what it takes, I know, Jesus, that you do. And the way I know that's true is because Jesus deemed all of us worthy when he came out of heaven into earth, descended into the lower earthly regions to what? To take all of our unworthiness and nail it on a cross on himself so that now we can have a relationship with him. So when he takes all of that unworthiness on the cross, defeated death, the resurrection power of Jesus, returns back into heaven, comes back to us, lays down a cross in front of us and says, deny yourself and follow me. Pick up, pick up your cross. I dare you. I'll take you on an adventure, the adventure of a lifetime, and follow me. We need him. It's not graduating away from needing him. It's not becoming self-sufficient. And on the other side of that, number two, point number two, church unity is an acknowledgement of how much we need each other. Not only do we need God more, always, you always need Jesus. Be on your knees. I want to take back this notion of individualistic society Christianity, where it's, I just need Jesus in my coffee, and I'm good. You need people. And we have the opportunity as the church to be the people of God. We need each other. Because it says in verse 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as what? As each part does its work. We grow up as we do the work. It's so simple. Church unity was God's plan for gospel proclamation. Because Jesus said, he prayed for it. I pray that they may be one. I pray that they may be one. And here's the scariest reality, but I want you guys to feel it. Is that the unity that happens in here affects Jesus' credibility out there. The unity that we have together, the way that we love one another, the way that we actually pursue relationships, the way that we stay committed to one another is the very thing that should be so attractional that people want to be a part of it. Because guess what? We're all part of a new family with the same father. We're part of his new family. And as part of that family, now we have an opportunity to live it out because we grow up as we do the work. And you know what's ironic? I'm preaching this message about worthy of the calling. It's really ironic because this week on Tuesday, I came into a staff meeting right through those doors and I sat down in a circle and I felt like there was a knot in my heart and I felt like there was a deafening voice in my ears and it was saying, you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you're too young, you have nothing to say. Your name's not Miles. And I was sitting over there feeling this weight on my shoulders, physically feeling it. And it's funny, we start our staff meeting and Miles walks in and he says, you know what, I feel like somebody in this circle right now is feeling the weight of the attack of the enemy. And so I'm just gonna pray Ephesians 6, which is the armor of God over us as a church staff team. I was like, Miles, this is my week to preach. You're still preaching to me, like what? feeling this moment he began to pray that I felt like a weight was kind of falling and then he said something to our team as, as, and I want to say to you guys he says you know the teams that try not to lose what do they do 
they lose. Sorry, Falcons. Like the teams that try not to lose are the ones that lose. He said, our church, our staff, we get to play to win because we know that Jesus wins in the end. And so now you don't have to worry about who you are. You can step in freedom and confidence to know that God has put you in this place for such a time as this, for a moment like now, to ultimately proclaim the message that never stops needing to be proclaimed, which is that Jesus wins above all else, that he is good, that he is saving us, that he is over all and through all and in all, God and Father. He says, we can be confident. Let's start playing to win. Let's stop trying to play not to lose because that's fear and insecurity leading us. Let's lead with freedom and confidence. And he's saying this, and I'm still thinking about this moment. And actually, a story came to mind because the truth is, is that picture I showed you earlier with my awesome American Eagle polo, that picture, there was so much more going on. I was scared. I was afraid because my mom had just been diagnosed with breast cancer a few weeks before that camp. So I was so afraid of, honestly, it was my last chance with God. I was going to that camp thinking, this is it. And a story happened a few weeks before. And I hear my mom crying in the kitchen. And I go in to see her. She's crying, she's on her knees. She's saying, Gage, I'm not even good enough to provide for my family. I can't even put a meal on the table. She's crying. And right as she says that, a bird flies and lands on the windowsill of the kitchen. It has a big old juicy worm in its mouth. And it's legitimately staring a hole through us. And she smiles and kind of stands up and she says, if God will provide for the birds, how much more valuable are we? I know she was quoting Matthew 7. That's amazing. It's a miracle. But two hours later, our doorbell rings. It's our neighbor. He's standing there with a giant pan of lasagna. He says, man, our family's been praying for you. And we didn't, we just thought, you know what, we'll make you guys a meal tonight. You need to know that when you begin to serve, when you mean to do the work of the church, you create space for God to move in power. You don't realize how much that meal changed my life. My neighbors don't realize how much that meal changed my life. There's so many opportunities that God has aligned you with, relationships that he has brought into your life that you have a responsibility to. And you can do it. Stop wondering how God is going to use you in this life and start practicing the way that Jesus lived his pouring out the service and other people, being the church. To be honest, I've been staring at this part of the room and this part of the room because my mom's actually sitting right over there and I can't look over there or else I know I'll cry. is I was 13 years ago she beat breast cancer but I don't want you guys to celebrate yet last Christmas she was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer and it's back but I just want to tell this room mom thank you 
for showing me what an attitude that serves Jesus looks like. No matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, I see you on your knees praying for people and I know that so many people in heaven are gonna come up to you and say, thank you for sitting next to me because I had chemo at the same time and I was sitting in the chair next to you. And your hope and your positivity and the way that you lived your life led me to ask you the question, why? And you got the opportunity to share with them the hope of Jesus. Thank you for setting an example and being a beacon of light for me and for so many people. So I love you and I'm thankful for you. And if everybody could just stand up in this room and I wanna just pray over you guys. I didn't plan on doing that, but it just happened. So we're just gonna go with it. But I believe that somebody in this room needed to know that no matter what circumstance that you're in, no matter what situation, the Father in heaven knows and he's there with you. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this time. Father, I thank you that you're a good father, that you love us, that our love for you can be rooted in that and not our love for anything else. Lord, you're still writing an unbelievable story in so many hearts and lives in this room. God, I pray for the person right now who believes that they're not enough. God, I pray that you would meet them right in that space and let them know that you're more than enough. Let them know that they can trust you with their lives. Let them know that no matter what happens in this life, you're it. Burn up every desire apart from you. God, we wanna know you so clearly. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that this world isn't the end, that we can have a hope that lasts forever, that we can live in eternity with you. So Father, I pray that we would be a faithful church, that we would go out and be the church, that we would have works of service that are so on fire and fueled by you, God, that we would know without a shadow of a doubt that you're the one leading us. Father, I pray for the person in this room right now whose mom also has breast cancer. I pray for the person in this room right now who already has gotten a diagnosis leading into Christmas. I pray that you would meet them, you would comfort them, you would show them your love. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name, amen.